You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas is continuing his series on New Testament characters, now sharing a lesson on Mary. For more of this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. You're listening to New Testament Character Study 3 on Mary, the mother of Jesus, a figure greatly venerated by Orthodox and Catholics, often ignored by Protestants. A great woman of faith we've often talked about in our family because she's my wife's favorite character in Scripture, or at least that's what it seems to me. We've talked about Mary a lot, and we don't have to simply go by dubious traditions, we have biblical information about Mary spanning about 36 years in Scripture. In this lesson, we're going to look at her birth and marriage. We'll offer a speculative reconstruction of her life, year by year, what it might have been like. We'll look at character and lessons we have to learn from her. Oh, and especially, we're going to look at how the death of her son may have affected her, what it might have been like. Let's begin at the beginning. Probably she's born around 20 BC. It could have been a year or two later, or it could have been several years earlier. I get to that date by assuming she's a certain age when she has Jesus, and I'm subtracting that number of years from the time that Jesus was likely born, which was 6 BC. That date I've justified other places. I won't try to prove that here. We know nothing, nothing of her family, though there's a tradition that her parents were Joachim and Anne. She probably came from a poor family. She was named after a very famous person, Moses' sister Miriam, the prophetess, the singer, the leader. Miriam was extremely popular among the Jews and through names like uh, Mary and Maria, Miriam, Mariam. This has become one of the most common names in the world. And if you're listening to this and your name is Mary, ultimately you're named after Moses' sister, Miriam. As was the custom back then, she would have been uh, given in marriage or first betrothed um, in her early teens, maybe even as early as 12. I'm going to assume that she was 14. Betrothal was not the same as marriage, though the commitment was very solemn and very difficult to break. Being betrothed to Joseph, Luke 2.5, did not mean that they had conjugal rights because the relationship was not consummated until after the wedding. Probably she was married, as I said, between age 12 and 14, and the fact that she became pregnant so soon was certainly very difficult. And I'm I'm going to resist the temptation to to talk about what must have been said and the jokes, the innuendo, but certainly it would have been very, very trying. According to the prophecy of Isaiah 7, the virgin would be uh, pregnant, which itself is a miracle. Oh, and the child would be called Emmanuel. And in the early part of Matthew, we see that In a way, this is a name for Jesus. He's Emmanuel. Emmanuel is Hebrew for God with us. 
Some would say, well, in the Hebrew, it's not the word virgin, it's the word young woman. Well, that's true. Altma is young woman. But young women were expected to be virgins, or unless they were just married. Uh, when the Jews translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, the language that most of them read, they rendered Altma by Parthenos. And Parthenos is the Greek word for virgin, not young woman. Parthenos is a virgin. So I'm upholding the traditional understanding of the virgin birth. And yet, the scripture makes pretty clear that Mary did not remain a virgin. Matthew one twenty-five, that she began normal relations with her husband Joseph sometime after Jesus was born. There are several reasons for believing that she was not from a family of means. Or, at the very least, she did not marry into a family of means. When they were going to Bethlehem because of the census and looking for a place to stay, we read Luke 2, 7, there was no room in the inn. Incidentally, uh, kataluma, the word inn, could also equally well be the upper room. There's no room, no space in the upper room because the downstairs was typically used for storage and animals and the people lived upstairs. In that case, they went to a home, but they had to sleep downstairs in the part with the animals. Or it may actually be an inn. There's no way to decide it. We know, however, that our firstborn was cradled in a food trough, one that we euphemize, we say manger. But if you know any French or Italian, you immediately recognize that a manger is a place where food was put for animals. At her purification, uh, birds were sacrificed, Luke 2.24. In Leviticus 12, there was a rule, uh, you know, they would circumcise a child, but after 40 days, uh, she would uh, go to the temple when the time of her purification was, was finished. And there was a required sacrifice, but if you were poor, there was an alternative, and that was the birds. And so this tells us right away that uh, she and Joseph don't have much money. And yet they become the parents of a large and religiously observant family. She had at least eight children. I based that on Matthew 13, 55, and 56. If you have any doubt about that, read it yourself. We see that they made it a custom to come to Jerusalem for the feasts. In Luke 2, 41, we see them coming for the feast of Passover. They circumcised Jesus at the correct time, the eighth day. And we see that they offer the required sacrifice for their firstborn child. Let me give you a speculative reconstruction of her life. Now, I'll I'll repeat it at the end, but let me say it again right now. Uh, Virtually none of these dates will be correct. This is my guess. I'm speculating. But I do believe it accurately portrays the kind of family that she likely had. She's born 20 B.C. in Bethlehem. In the year 7 B.C., she's 13, she's engaged to Joseph to be married when she's 14. And yet she's found to be with child in the same year. Jesus is born, Jesus or Yeshua as they named him, God saves, in 6 B.C. 
because of the threat from Herod, who was extremely jealous of his throne, Joseph takes Mary and their baby Jesus to Egypt to hide until the death of Herod. Herod the Great dies in 4 BC. They return from Egypt, moving again, this time to Nazareth. They've left Judea. They've gone to the northern part of the country, which is called Galilee, and the town is Nazareth. Many times in Scripture, we read about Jesus' brother James, or Jacob, or in Hebrew, Yaakov. I think it's fair to guess that he was born about 3 B.C. So Jesus, 6 B.C., James, 3 B.C. We read in Matthew that she had a number of daughters. So her first daughter is born in 1 B.C. Her son, Yosef, or Joseph, named after his father, is born in 2 A.D., and then the second daughter the following year. In the year 5 AD, she gives birth to another daughter, but she lives only a few days before dying. Infant mortality rates were not what they are now. In 7 AD, when Jesus is 12 years old, the family comes to the temple. And we read about this visit in Luke 2. No speculation there. A couple years later, the third surviving daughter is born, 9 AD. Judah, Yehuda, 12 AD, and Shimeon, Simon, born in 14 AD. Six years later, Joseph dies. Jesus is now the male family head. The fact that Joseph is not mentioned at all in the times when Jesus is uh, active in his ministry Uh, suggests that he had died. And this is the position nearly all interpreters would take. So, if it was 20 AD, Jesus is now the male family head. He has younger siblings, though perhaps not all of them are born yet. I think quite likely they were. But Mary is a widow. 22 AD. James's first child is born. Mary becomes a grandmother. Many more grandchildren follow. Jesus is executed 7th of April, 30 AD. That, by the way, is a hard date. <laughs> Mary's now 49, and she joins the um, apostles and her siblings, uh, not her siblings, Jesus' siblings, in prayer in the upper room. 40 AD, 10 years later, she moves from Palestine, possibly to Ephesus. 53, she dies, age 72. Well, that's my speculative reconstruction, but I'm trying to take account of the facts, life expectancies, infant mortality, the uh, number and even the names of the children she had, according to the Gospels, and some other significant events. If that's too fast for you, all of this is in the notes that accompany the podcast. What about her character? When she's first told that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah, she says, Luke 134, how will this be? It's explained to her and she accepts it. The way Luke lays it out, this is in contrast to the reaction of Zechariah. It was unlikely that Zechariah and Elizabeth, who seemed to be related to Mary, uh, would have a child. In their case, because they're very old. 
I suppose it should take more faith to believe that uh, you'll be um, giving birth to a child in a virgin birth than to believe that you'd have a child in old age. Zechariah's reaction when he hears from the angel is, you know, how, how can that be? I mean, he's rather skeptical. Mary is more open and has eyes of wonderment. How will this be? And she accepts the truth. And she's a model of purity and faith. This doesn't mean that she necessarily was on the same page as her son, Jesus. Now, we don't know when Jesus' consciousness of his own messiahship first blazed in his mind. It seems to be hinted at in Luke 2 during that visit, don't you think, to Jerusalem? In Mark 3, Jesus' family comes to take him away because he's, he's not eating. He's too busy. His schedule, in their eyes, is out of control. And they're saying he's beside himself. So she seems to be slow to realize the identity of her son. Now, this doesn't mean that Mary was faithless. Even faithful people need time to mature and to reach conclusions, especially when the implications are heavy. And we mustn't mistake a commitment with maturity or lack of maturity with lack of commitment. They're not the same. Eventually, she does come around. Some see her as being somewhat controlling. In John 2, verses 3 and 4, when they run out of wine at the wedding feast in Cana, she tries to get Jesus involved. Was she being controlling? Or was she just too eager, too fired up about the wedding? It's difficult to tell, given the cultural and chronological gap between us and them. We do know that she traveled a lot. And the first uh, journey we read of seems to have been her desire when she finds out that her kinsman Elizabeth is going to have a child in her old age. And this is right after she finds out that she's going to have a child by the Holy Spirit. She's eager to share this moment with Elizabeth and she travels to see Elizabeth. It doesn't mean that she went alone, but she was quite young and she's traveling. And this shows, I think, a certain flexibility, a certain sense of adventure. There were more moves in store for her than she could possibly have known. Because of the census the Roman government ordered, she had to go to the land of her birth or where her ancestors were from, in the south, south of Jerusalem, to the town of Bethlehem. And then because Herod was so afraid that the king of the Jews would show him up as not being the king of the Jews, they had to get out of the country. And they, they go southwest into Egypt. And this fear was not ungrounded. Herod had killed a number of his associates and children, even killed his favorite wife. And after some time in Egypt, a year, maybe two, then they go to Nazareth in the north. And of course, I mentioned the tradition. It's outside the Bible. It's extra biblical that she ended her days in Ephesus. We don't really know. We do see that she has faith, that she comes to faith in her son as the Messiah. And that's certainly very clear by um, the day of Pentecost because she's already praying with the apostles. She's identified herself with Jesus' followers. And we see that she has good character. And uh, in the Christian tradition, 
Um, we have uh, Jude and, and the other children being Christians. And James is explicitly mentioned in Galatians. And we find him explicitly mentioned in Acts 15 as the president or the, the main guy in the church in Jerusalem. And by tradition, the letter of James is written by him as well. So it's a great family. It's too bad that Joseph died young or too young to see his son um, in his ministry, and his glory. So how did Jesus' death affect Mary? If my chronology is right, Mary was in her late 40s at this time. She wasn't 50 yet, but she was very close. And even before Calvary, she had suffered great loss. She'd lost a husband. It'd be surprising if she hadn't lost a child, given the conditions of the day. Uh, And that would not have been unusual at all. Often when we think of Mary at the cross, when we paint a picture of the cross, perhaps in our evangelism, in our communion messages, we focus on the gore. As though by shocking the audience, people appreciate salvation more. There's something to be said, I think, for jolting the consciousness to a state of alertness and and gratitude for what someone else has suffered for us. That's right. There's a place for that. I think it's interesting, though, in the early church, there's very little emphasis on the gore. A more common word connected with the cross is the word scandal. A scandal is a stumbling block. Uh, Scandalon is a Greek word meaning stumbling block. I think of 1 Corinthians one twenty three. You know, the cross... To some was foolishness, to the intellectuals, to the Greeks, it was foolishness. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. It was a stumbling block because the Messiah wasn't supposed to fail. And his death to them meant failure. They couldn't get over that. They had the image of the conquering king. They had the image of the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. They didn't have the image of the suffering servant. They had ignored the prophecies that talked about the lamb led to the slaughter. And so the scandal, the stumbling block of the cross, has nothing to do with the degree of pain, but with the shame of the event. For this execution was normally reserved for slaves, never for Roman citizens, except perhaps for those guilty of treason. The shame of crucifixion, if we're seeking a modern stigma, equally degrading and shameful, might be on a par with registration as a pedophile, Even if the accused were innocent, everyone would naturally assume that he must have done something to deserve the label, nor would they easily lose the stigma. I mean, how would you feel about attending a church where the preacher had been tried for pedophilia? What if the evangelist or one of the elders in your church was currently in jail and you're sharing your faith? And they say, so who's your preacher? Who who leads? And you say, well... Joe, he's a great guy, really. Don't believe what you hear. What do you mean? Well, he's in jail right now. Ooh, what happened? What's he in for? Pedophilia. You see, even if it was complete fabrication, there's such a stigma there. I think that would affect people's emotions. It would even affect their evangelism. How would you feel about bringing people to church where the founding leader was in jail for such a crime? If you can understand, and maybe you feel, well, that's just a bit extreme. Actually, I'm not sure it's extreme enough. 
Now we're starting to understand, just beginning to understand, the scandal of the cross. Your leader was crucified? What did he do? He was innocent? Oh, but they don't just crucify anybody. You've got to do something to... Ooh, I don't even want to be associated with the group founded by someone who was crucified. I hope this is making some sense. I mean, no wonder the cross was foolishness to Greeks and a stumbling block, a scandalous nonsense to the Jews. So how would that have affected Mary? To lose a child is a very painful thing. I I saw the pain it caused my parents when their 20-year-old daughter died, when when I lost my sister. And many of you listening to this have lost a child. Or perhaps the child wasn't even born. It was a miscarriage. You know how hard that is. It's, it's tough if your kids don't do well. Perhaps some of you have had children who've, who've gone in prison or they're in prison right now. That's challenging. Well, here's Jesus who's not only uh, tried as a criminal, he's executed, but in the most shameful, degrading way possible, a, a form of death that would cause everyone who heard of it to be dumbstruck. How can you be following a crucified Messiah? That makes no sense. That's the scum of the earth. You're following him? What? Hopefully, this little um, picture I painted may help us to understand how hard it must have been for Mary when her son had died that way. Now, what many of us do when tough times come is we pull back. Uh, we, we, we shut down, men especially. We withdraw. Or we uh, become addicted to something. <laughs> addicted to some video game as if the video game is going to, to numb us. Or maybe some people turn to alcohol or some other thing to, to dull the pain. So easy to pull back. Or some women and men be, just become bitter. They keep going but their face changes in appearance. They pull back and they're jaded and they'll never trust again. What Mary does is she builds relationships with Jesus' followers. And I'd like you to do this on your own as you read through the Gospels. Look at the people that she's with. Look at the people around the cross. Look at the people who are praying together. She builds relationships with Jesus' followers. And a number of them are actually older women, women about Mary's age. And so, even though she's, for all intents and purposes, a Galilean, she's connecting herself with uh, women from a number of different towns, not just in Galilee, but in the south in Judea. I think she knows she needs help. She needs people. The lessons for us become fairly obvious. I see three. One is simply faith. When she was young and life was relatively simple if we discount the virgin birth incident, it's not so hard to believe. You know, when your life is before you and you've got great health, you're young and everything is, yeah, you're hopeful. But the real test of faith is is not, do you believe when the weather is fair? It's how do we believe when the weather is foul, Uh, when things are disappointing, complicated, painful. And we see Mary not giving up her faith, but rather growing in her faith. Second, I see flexibility. I've already mentioned her mobility, willing to go places, to move, maybe even more times than we realize. 
but not just a, a physical or geographical mobility, but uh, a flexibility of relationship, willing to make new friends. Do I need to mention them? Susanna, Mary Magdalene, Maria Magdalena, the apostles themselves, Joanna, who will be the subject of our next podcast. She's opened new relationships. What my wife and I have noticed is that often, by the time people get into their 40s and 50s, they have their relationships. They're not really looking for new relationships. It's hard to break in. Even if they don't have many relationships, they're not likely to build many more. I talk to a good number of middle-aged men, like myself, men who, who don't seem to have friends. Who's your friend? Well, Ralph. How often do you see him? Well, he sits at work in the cubicle next to me. You ever spent time together? Well, we went fishing five years ago. I mean, it's so sad. So little connection. People are such loners. And the older we get, I think, the more difficult it is. The more we have to make an effort to to break into structures, to break into uh, circles um, that seem to be already established. So here's Mary, open to relationship, and she finds people who are open to it as well. Faith, flexibility, and perseverance through hardship. We read in Luke 2, now we're rewinding here to Mary, very young. And this is the old man in the temple named Simeon who blesses them. Listen to this. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Wow. To be told in the same prophecy that your son will cause the falling and rising of many in Israel People's fortunes will rise and fall. People will excel or bottom out. All in relation to my son. And to be a sign that will be spoken against. I I hope my son has the, the character that is required. But then Simeon continues. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Sharp, burning pain. Is this the pain of losing a son on the cross through the most ignoble, shameful death? I'm sure that's part of it. Or is it bigger than that? The cumulative pain that she would experience in her life from being widowed, losing children, being the subject of gossip. Well, even as a young girl, suspicion, false accusation, innuendo. And you know how families put so much stock in their firstborn child to lose your firstborn. Truly, a sword pierced her own soul as well. These are some lessons I see. Let me just say a word about Mariology, and then we'll summarize. Mariology is the study of Mary. And I've given you some terms in the notes. Mariolatry is the worship of Mary, which in the early church was absent, but it became common after a few centuries. And something relating to Mary is Marian, M-A-R-I-A-N. Here's how it worked out. In the second and third centuries, Christians placed an increasing premium 
on virginity. I think this may be a reaction to Gnosticism. Gnosticism was the biggest issue, the most uh, serious uh, heresy and, and philosophy of the second century, the 100s. And the Gnostics believed that the physical world was evil, that whoever created the world was evil. They did not uh, accept the, the God of the Bible. And the, the body was really nothing more than a prison house for the soul. It was a tomb. And our bodies were not glorious. They're, they're not temples of the spirit. Our bodies are, are basically corpses animated by a spirit. But one day the spirit will leave and the body will rot. And so all things physical and natural and material are, are, are evil. And sex is evil. So the Gnostics taught that sex was wrong. Maybe it was a necessary evil. And perhaps influenced by them, the church, too, started to place uh, more and more uh, emphasis on virginity. Jesus and Paul said that if you can remain celibate lifelong, that is the preferred course for a single. You find that in 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 19, and certainly that's true. But it's also true that it's a gift. Not everyone can accept it. Not everyone has that gift, 1 Corinthians 7, 7. And so since the vast majority will need to marry, to emphasize perpetual virginity is to create a standard that's only going to lead to frustration. And so as the premium was placed on virginity, the views about marry began to change. And we start finding, even in the second century, traditions that, well, the man she married had children from a previous marriage. So they're not really Jesus' brothers, they're his cousins. Well, of course, you know, it's not impossible that Joseph was married first, but there's nothing in the Bible to suggest that. And one suspects that that is a, a desperate attempt to salvage the virginity of Mary, which is not required. In fact, is contradicted by the Bible. Matthew one twenty five, she did not have sexual relations with her husband until the birth of their first child. Well, by the year 431, she was officially declared mother of God at the Council of Ephesus. I find that rather interesting because Ephesus was a place where the goddess Artemis, or Diana, was worshipped. And in Asia Minor, Ephesus is the leading city of the westernmost province of Asia, which is part of Asia Minor, modern Turkey. Sorry for the geography lesson. In that whole area the mother goddess was very important. And so people wanted to relate to the infinite, to the ultimate, to the divine through a female figure. And so perhaps it's just um, a coincidence, but I tend to think there's something more to it. She was declared the mother of God at the council of Ephesus. And that meant that people could pray to her, uh, people could venerate her. In the year 533, she was declared to be a perpetual virgin. And I'm not saying that no one thought it before that time, but that's the year that it becomes official. By the year 1050, now we're, we're going way ahead, in the high Middle Ages, we find the prayer, the Ave Maria. You know, Hail Mary, full of grace. The prayer that is said by, by millions of people today. The doctrine of her Immaculate Conception does not become official until 1854. A lot of Christians think the Immaculate Conception is just another fancy way of saying the virgin birth, but it's not. Catholics in the 5th century 
came to believe in original sin. That you were born with the stain of Adam. You were born in a state of lostness for all intents and purposes. Well, if Mary inherited Adam's sin, she would have passed it on to Jesus, in which case Jesus couldn't be our sacrifice. So to salvage the theory of original sin, this is one patch on top of another patch, theologians came up with the idea of the Immaculate Conception. That when Joachim and Anne uh, came together and, and then Mary was conceived, somehow God interfered and prevented sin that had been transmitted through previous generations from ever getting to Mary. That's the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Of course, you could say, well, why didn't he just protect all their grandparents from it or the great-great-grandparents? But it's an infinite regression. Ultimately, the doctrine of original sin refutes itself. So, second and third centuries, increasing premium placed on virginity. 431, Mother of God. 533, Perpetual Virgin. 1050, Ave Maria. All this is in the notes. 1854, Immaculate Conception. And it wasn't until 1950 that... Uh, the doctrine of her assumption into heaven was made official. Catholics and Orthodox believe that Mary reigns as queen of heaven. Catholics say that she never died. Her body was taken up, kind of like Elijah, uh, just taken up to heaven. Orthodox have a similar view, but they say she died or she fell asleep. They call that the dormition. She fell asleep in the presence of the apostles, and, but then she, she rose and was taken up to heaven. And uh, I have some thoughts about the Queen of Heaven, which I put in your notes, and you can look at those on your own, on your own time. So a little, about the, a little bit about the development of Mariology, just to show that that's a far cry from the Mary we read about in the Bible. What do we need to remember from this lesson? Well, I would like you to remember that she was a woman who has uh, uh, more, more than 35 years of history recorded in the Scripture. We actually know quite a bit about her family, because she had so many children. Her character was good, and she's worthy of emulation, even if you're a man. Uh, We need to imitate any example of faith, regardless of the gender of the person living the life of faith. And those important lessons, not only of faith, but of flexibility, not just of flexibility, but of persevering through hardship, are lessons that can bless us. Because the truth is, the longer we follow the Savior the more a sword will pierce our own soul too. I heard an incredible uh, quote the other day, and it is this. It was said by Khalil Gibran. Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. The most massive characters are seared with scars. Let's follow Mary and her perseverance, her flexibility, and her faith. And I truly hope that you've learned something that you can apply to your own heart and share with others. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching on New Testament characters. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas' teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.